This episode of Ask Science Mike was brought to you by Pinatagrams. Why send a card when you can send a pinata? Go to pinatagrams.com to learn more. And by SaneBox. Master your email inbox in just 20 minutes by visiting sanebox.com slash sciencemike. Humanism, harmony, and spontaneous human combustion. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But I'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. This week, June 9th, I'll be in Saratoga at the Saratoga Federated Church for the Village Forum. We'll explore the tension between science and faith and Christianity and doubt in a one-evening event, and I'd love to see you there. But for now, we've got a podcast to do, so let's get it started. Hey Mike, it's Keith here from St. Catharines, Ontario in Canada. I'll be amazed if no one's asked you this question yet. It's on spontaneous human combustion. I just want to know your thoughts on it. Is it possible? And what's the science behind it? I've watched some silly documentary on it, but I don't really know whether to take it as a joke or if it's actually possible or not. So yeah, thanks for considering my question. Love your show. Keep being awesome. Peace out. Well, spontaneous human combustion is a fascinating, somewhat macabre subject. Uh, And if you've never heard of it, the idea is that some people catch fire without any obvious source. People believe that because some human remains have been found where there's been uh, obvious fire damage to an individual, extensive fire damage, especially to the torso. And often people's extremities are still on the scene, unburned like their hands or their feet or segments of arm or leg. And the surroundings typically aren't uh, up in flame or burned or show signs of fire damage, other than whatever the person was in immediate proximity with. And this has led to an idea that somehow, under some circumstances, human beings can catch on fire. And you'll hear people that are proponents of spontaneous human combustion talk about uh, interactions between like methane in the gut and enzymes, or uh, they might be talk about digestive gases being sparked by charged particles in the Earth's magnetosphere, uh, or even uh, one man who talks about an undiscovered fundamental particle in physics called the pyroton. You've heard of the proton, the neutron, and the electron, Well, this is the pyroton. And the one thing all these theories have in common is pseudoscientific language. They use technical-sounding terms to lend credence to hypotheses that haven't been tested or demonstrated scientifically. Uh, So you can talk about a pyroton, I suppose, but there's been absolutely no evidence in particle accelerators or any other experiments in physics to demonstrate the validity of that idea. So I think spontaneous human combustion 
He's extraordinarily likely to impossible. Now, why don't I just say impossible? Well, in particle physics, some truly strange things are possible. It is possible that the random motion of all the atoms in a statue happened to line up in just such a way for a moment that a statue would wave to someone. That is possible. It is possible within the laws of physics, but it is incredibly unlikely. It is astronomically unlikely. Even if you had a statue that had been around the entire age of the universe, you still would have no significant statistical chance that that statue would have waved at any point in its existence because generally the random motions in uh, atoms and molecules within a given structure cancel each other out. Uh, in the same way that you, it's either impossible or extremely unlikely to have thermal energy to coalesce in some mass of human tissue in such a way that you get sufficient heat to trigger ignition. The fact is, human bodies aren't terribly combustible. So for people to catch on fire, you need some kind of accelerant, uh, and you need some material that catches fire more easily and stays on fire to keep the kind of sustained thermal pressure on our tissue to cause it to ignite. So what about these bodies that have been discovered? Well, there's a couple of ideas in more plausible science that could describe this. One is something called the wick effect, uh, basically that some small fire, perhaps from a cigarette or other small source of flame, caused either clothing or body hair to catch fire uh, in such a way and in, for such a time uh, that as the person passed from surface wounds to their body and burns or were immobilized, then their body fat began to burn. And uh, basically, you got a, a candle-like assemblage of human tissue. This is really macabre stuff. Uh, I just realized this is a weird question to lead with. It's like, oh, how frivolous, spontaneous human combustion. But what are we talking about? <laughs> the you know combustion of human tissue. So, ugh. So there's the wick effect. That's one possibility. Another idea is heat gradients. When you light a match and you hold it up vertically, uh, the bottom of the match stays cool, right? Uh, the same thing would be true if a person's torso caught on fire. The flame wouldn't necessarily spread down to their limbs, but it would almost certainly spread up to their, their face. Um, and then I think the most likely explanation for most cases of so-called spontaneous human combustion is a bad actor trying to cover up foul play. They're eliminating evidence of whatever trauma was involved uh, when they ended someone's life. So I know there's those documentaries out there, and believe me, they are fascinating. Uh, but I don't find them particularly credible or compelling from a scientific standpoint. Again, why? They have all the markings of pseudoscience. Technical language used incorrectly, original scientific theory from non-credible sources, uh, and of course, a failure to demonstrate through experiment or observation a basis to justify their claims. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Hey, Science Mike, you seem to be a fan of humanism. I mean, from what I've heard, you think it's pretty great. For me, most of my adult life has been shaped by the idea that humanism is bad 
which is mostly rooted in the Paris Reedhead definition of humanism. Uh, editor's note or science Mike's note. I don't have any idea who that person is. Paris Reedhead definition of humanism being that the end of all being is the happiness of man. In my experience, Humanism has been prevalent in the church, and no one needs to look farther than the doctrine of heaven and eternal rewards to see how humanistic the evangelical church can be. In fact, most religions seem to focus on what we can get out of it. My question is, why is humanism such a positive thing? Is it really rooted in our own happiness or is there a deeper science to it that enables us to do the right thing for the sake of what we might gain from it? St. Thomas Aquinas pointed out that doing the right thing for the wrong reason is in itself an evil act. So is humanism enough, or rather am I off on my understanding of what humanism is? That is a phenomenal question. Um, thank you for asking it and giving me a chance to clarify humanism. One thing that grieves me in the church is when we do something called the straw man fallacy. Now, I'm actually not really into pointing out logical fallacies in rhetorical discussions. Logical fallacies have to do with a formal logic process, and although they can inform our thinking, I think we're too quick to... Uh, throw out and quote fallacies on the internet in the course of just a normal discussion that isn't actually a rigorous exercise in logic. But in this case, it seems that Christians are not immune from the very human tendency to define an oppositional group or an opponent in a way that makes them more convenient to defeat. So if you define humanism as an idea that human happiness matters more than anything, that's a relatively easy idea to take apart. It is not humanism. Let's talk about a couple of definitions of humanism. Uh, here from the Oxford English Dictionary. Humanism, an outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. Humanist beliefs stress the potential value and goodness of human beings, emphasize common human needs, and seek solely rational ways of solving human problems. You will notice the word happiness was never mentioned. Here's another definition that I think is shorter and more concise. Humanism is a democratic and ethical life stance that affirms that human beings have the right and responsibility to give meaning and shape to their own lives. Again, the word happiness is not part of that definition. And I would challenge you to find anyone who identifies as a humanist, who defines humanism as placing prime importance on human happiness. I am actually a huge fan of humanism as a philosophy. And here's an interesting thing about moral philosophies like humanism. It's not a science. Now, humanism is certainly a philosophy largely compatible with the scientific method and with empiricism, 
as a philosophy of knowing or an epistemology, but it's not, it's not a science-based. It emphasizes the importance of rational thought in addressing problems, but it's not a science. For people who no longer believe in God or never believed in God, they can't use divine will or divine law as a basis for moral thinking. In fact, most of them find it very difficult to use any objective standard for morality, but that does not mean they are without morals. So humanism is a moral philosophy used to guide ethical decisions. And in its decision-making rubric, instead of what does God have to say on this topic, it's how do actions affect other people? And how do we protect the right of human beings to shape their own destiny. And when does that right end? And humanism would say, your ability to shape your own destiny ends when it robs someone else of that same basic right. So if you believe your destiny is to be the overlord to every human being on the planet, humanism would rob you of that destiny. Why? Because you would then be eliminating the rights of other humans and that right being their ability to shape their own existence. I call myself a religious humanist as opposed to the far more common secular humanist. Secularists tend to be uh, post-religious. And the fact is, I'm learning, I am a deeply religious person. I love science, uh, but I'm deeply religious. But what I, I don't do is use my religious beliefs to mandate how other people live their lives because I have found a faith that makes me feel close to God, but I don't make any objective claims to have special knowledge based on that religious faith. I can't demonstrate to a legal or scientific standard of evidence why my faith is any more correct than someone else's, which is why I am a humanist because I believe every person has a right to shape their own life and to find their own meaning. I find my meaning in God. I find my meaning in the life I see modeled in Jesus Christ. But as a religious humanist, I don't expect other people to follow the same breadcrumbs, to chase the same experiences, to offer the same authority to this, this religious belief system. I can understand why people object to a Jesus who was resurrected from the dead or who was the incarnate of God. I can even understand why some people reasonably say that uh, Jesus as a person, doesn't fit enough of a standard of evidence to even say conclusively that he existed in the first place. So I can't ask people to live a Judeo-Christian life, but I can choose to live one. So yeah, absolutely. I'm a huge fan of humanism. I think humanists do good in the world. I think in many ways humanists represent moral progress, and I think that many humanists do a good job of calling out 
the ugliest pieces of our faith, the parts of the church that are in most desperate need of reform. It's humanists who speak loudest about child abuse in churches, about authoritarian and abusive systems, and also about the tendency in America especially for conservative politics and the Christian faith to conflate together and move in ways that threaten the well-being of mankind, I think, for example, of climate change. So I appreciate humanists as people. I appreciate humanism as a philosophy. And I absolutely appreciate the way humanists call out the church and challenge us to be better humans. Do you ever feel completely overwhelmed by email, like you don't even want to open it because on your phone, that little red circle says 200 or 300 or 1,100 unread emails? Do you find that you spend more time during your workday responding to email than anything else? Do you wish your email was just a little more sane? Well, I use a product called SaneBox. And SaneBox is a service that is absolutely magical. When you sign up, it connects to your email server, and it goes through and sorts all your email for you. So your inbox becomes nothing but messages from the people you work with the most, messages that actually require a response, and everything else gets put in a a different folder you can look through when you have more time. I am not kidding when I say SaneBox has changed the way I do email. It works with any device. It works with any mail program. You don't have to change anything about your setup. SaneBox will work with how you work today. So if you're interested in taking control of your email, just go to SaneBox.com slash ScienceMike where you can not only get more information, but you can also get a discount on any SaneBox plan. Again, SaneBox.com slash ScienceMike for more sanity in your email. Hey, ScienceMike. Got a Leo question for you. A lot of your questions are geared towards the science and Christian community. My question is from the atheist perspective. I am an atheist, much to the chagrin of my parents who are in the ministry. I became a very angry Christopher Hitchens kind of atheist. Um, but thanks to your doubt series, that very much changed my perspective, but not so much my resolution. I see the idea for God as a force for good in the world. My Facebook is 97% Christian. There are a lot of times people will post very right-wing or conservative ideas and posts. One time I couldn't help it but post an atheist meme to counter the person's argument. Now, I am a closeted atheist, and this caused quite a big a stir, so I removed the post not long after. I've come to the realization that any extremism in any group is wrong and not a true representation of that group. Like Christians saying, thank God for dead soldiers, or Muslims are terrorists, or atheists are the only schooled people. My question is, how do we be passionate about what we believe, but still have love and harmony for each other? Thanks, Science Mike. That's a fantastic question, and I'm glad you care about it. I'm really encouraged anytime I hear that people want to have more gracious discussions. The entire reason I do this podcast, I guess not the entire reason, but a huge reason I do this podcast 
is just to try to encourage people to have better conversations, to be more gracious to each other, because there's billions of us on this planet all just trying to figure out how to get through life. And so my answer starts there. I realize that everyone on my Facebook timeline, in my Twitter feed, in the grocery store, in the highway, are all just people trying to get through life. And that, that they've got stress. They have to figure out how to pay the bills. They have to figure out how to keep the house clean and eat. They've got to take care of their kids or their pets. There's all these stressors on them, and sometimes they feel lonely. Other times they feel overwhelmed. Or they fear rejection. I understand that in many ways, human life is hard. I know sometimes in the morning before I've had my coffee, even if I've had a time of reflection and meditation, I can be distant or grumpy with my own family, the people I love the most. And if I can be grumpy with my wife and children just because I haven't had a cup of coffee yet, well, certainly other people could be more than grumpy on the internet. (laughs) I start by understanding that people are often operating from places of fatigue or stress or pain. And I think, how would I want to be treated if I was tired or stressed or hurting? I also am propelled to a posture of humility. There are just so many things I don't know. And there's so many things that I hold dear that I've researched and I'm still wrong about. Earlier in this program, in an earlier episode, uh, I was describing egalitarianism as a philosophy, not egalitarianism, egalitarianism. Here I am, a person who reads all the time, and I'd never heard that word said aloud. So how can I look down my nose at someone else who uses a word incorrectly or pronounces a word incorrectly or is somehow misinformed? I work as hard as anyone I know at being well-informed, And I am very often misinformed. I understand that people did not choose the cultures or families they were born into. And so I offer people grace. But that's not all. I don't take the internet very seriously. It's an amazing encyclopedia. I love seeing vacation pictures and family photos and Facebook. But the vitriolic discourse so common to our online spaces, I just kind of check out of. Uh, Without hesitation, I unfollow people or media sources on social media that continually put harsh emotional energy into my social media experience because I understand that I'm human. And if I too often allow my amygdala to get fired up because of the internet, it will create a pattern of behavior that I will later regret. So I step out. It's frankly a waste of my precious time to try to convince or cajole people one-on-one to think differently on the internet. Uh, so in your case, if I, you've asked for my advice, well, I'll give it. If, if you hadn't asked, I would never say this. But in your case, why not just unfollow those people? 
It's that simple. If it's the same people over and over putting right-wing information in your newsfeed that just seems vitriolic or misinformed to you, unfollow. Now, I am careful. I like to keep thoughtful people who disagree with me in my social media newsfeeds. And I actually try to fill my newsfeeds as much as possible with thoughtful people who come from different perspectives. But, you know, I know what you're talking about. There's, there's unthoughtful opposition, and I'm not interested in it. So just unfollow. And in terms of the closet atheist thing, that's a rough spot. I've been there, and I'm sorry you're going through that. And I hope somehow you're able to come to a point in your life where you can be honest with those people closest to you about how you see the world and, yes, how you see God. If you're anything like me, there's a particular type of exhaustion that comes from hiding your beliefs all the time. And it may be possible that some of your frustration with what you see on social media is actually related to an emotional, psychological fatigue related to being a closet atheist. And I would spend some time in reflection to see if there's any way, any plausible avenue that you can live your life in a more whole way, uh, in a way there where you can be yourself. For all of my Christian friends listening right now, how can we be better friends to our friends who don't believe in God anymore? How can we make them feel more safe and more comfortable with where they are? Because I think if we can learn to do that, we'll actually do a better job of living out the gospel in this world. Do you ever get a thank you card in the mail or get well soon card? How about a gift? Do you ever do you like to receive those? I do. I am always challenged that I should be a more thoughtful person when people send me cards and letters. But the fact is my handwriting is terrible and it's always hard to find a stamp and Honestly, I'm the kind of person that likes to do things that stand out, which is why I think pinatagrams are so much fun. You go to pinatagrams.com, you fill out a simple form, you pay $20, and a pinata gets mailed to the person you choose. It's full of candy, it has a message on its label for the person you send it to. It's an absolutely whimsical way to make an amazing impression. Try it yourself today at pinatagrams.com. Our last question came in via email, and it does contain a little uh, adult theme. Not super heavy, but it, it will, we will have some adult terms. So if you're listening with your kids and you haven't had the talk yet, maybe hit pause and pick this back up after they've gone to bed. Hi, Science Mike. Love this podcast. Big fan. My question is this, what good to believers is a non-sexual Jesus? Non-sexual Jesus is a phrase I recently heard on the You Made It Weird podcast with Pete Holmes, where I first heard your story, and refers to a Jesus who, while fully God and fully man, never had a sexual experience, i.e. intercourse slash masturbation, etc., at least based on what we know from the Bible. As a man who has been married for seven years 
and has had what I'd consider a fairly intense sex drive my whole life. What good is a non-sexual Jesus to a guy slash gal who at some times feels insatiable or like their sex drive is out of control? What could I, or we, I'm likely not alone here, possibly take away from his teachings that applies to a specific aspect of humanity that he never experienced? I'm sure the answer to this question has loads of applications for the single-slash-non-married folk as well. Thanks so much for your podcast, DN Minnesota. When I saw your question, I got selected for this week's Patreon poll. I was like, maybe they just won't vote for it. I won't have to answer this one. (laughs) And then it was, of course, the most voted for question on this week's poll by far, which means I have to answer it. Uh, (laughs) And why I don't want to answer it will maybe surprise you. I'm not squeamish about talking about sex and sexuality. That doesn't bother me at all. I am reticent about speaking on theological matters that have to do with a detailed understanding of ancient history of which I am no expert. So kind of like last week, where someone asked me what uh, philosophies informed early Christianity, to talk about this question, we have to talk about first century ideas of sex and sexuality. And I'm just not an expert. I've read more than the average bear, but holy cow, am I not an expert. Uh, So let's think about this. First of all, um, the first century Jewish ethic about sexual purity uh, was primarily about the protection of property. Primarily about the protection of property. Uh, Daughters were property of fathers. And they were exchanged for economic goods or services or some combination in a marriage ritual, at which point that property was transferred to another family. And part of the value of a daughter was virginity probably based on a primitive understanding of sexually transmitted diseases. That could have been a role in why virginity was so valued. And the main focus for a woman was her ability to produce children. Children were a sign of prosperity and wealth in that culture. This meant that kids got married when they were 12 or 13. So there's a reason... Uh, premarital sex wasn't discussed all that often. It wasn't a huge deal. It just wasn't. Uh, extramarital sex was a big deal because humans are humans. To sleep with another man's wife was to defile or steal property. And I'm sure some historian is screaming right now. <laughs> so whatever I've missed, I apologize. I look forward to your email and getting smarter on this topic. That was kind of the first century Judeo outlook. Now, the Greco-Roman outlook was completely, well, not completely different, but different. Rome cared a great deal about masculinity versus femininity. And uh, if you could look at a gender binary or an orientation binary in Roman society, it had to do more about active penetrator versus 
receiver or uh, penetrated. And so it was perfectly acceptable, for example, for a man who was high in Roman society to penetrate whom he pleased. Um, it's totally normal in that society for men to be attracted to teenage boys or girls. Uh, but it was also frowned upon to be uh, unrestrained or uncontrolled sexually. It's kind of a strange dynamic. Um, especially in our modern context. Uh, so it's not, it's not fair to say that Rome was without sexual norms or ethics. That was just some sort of completely unrestrained sexual culture that is not historically accurate. It is fair to say it was very different from modern sexual ethics. Uh, and, you know, you could make an argument that we're actually more obsessed with sex today uh, than first century Jews or uh, Greco-Roman cultures in the first century. Uh, but that means, you know, we have this fourth century view on sexuality. Uh, most of the church's views on sex aren't actually related to teachings in the time of Christ or even teachings of Jesus, but to some bishops in the fourth century whose beliefs got really uh, magnified in the puritanical movement. And there's a very strong puritanical undercurrent to American sexuality, even to some degree European sexuality, although nowhere nearly as strong as an influence is in the United States, where all sex is sort of taboo and dirty. That's a newer idea historically. Uh, masturbation, for example, uh, isn't mentioned much in the Bible. When it is, it's in the context of a man named Onan who spilled his seed on the ground, but that was not his sin. His sin was actually his failure to impregnate his deceased brother's wife. And in, in the law of the day, he had an obligation to help her father children after his brother died. And instead, he spilled his seed into the ground, which was the sin of Onan. There's not actually, to my knowledge, any specific prohibition against masturbation in the Bible. And if you look at things like Christ talked about lust, my understanding of the original language is that word lust is a covetous desire. Uh, you wish to have something that's not yours, which comes back to what? That property view of sexuality. Well, what on earth use is that Jesus to us? A Jesus who really only spoke about what? Divorce, adultery, <laughs> lust, well, if the Bible is to be believed and if Christian theology is to be believed, then Jesus was fully man and fully God, and he experienced the full range of temptations that humanity experiences and resisted them. That's the gospel story, uh, for most of the church anyway. What use is that Jesus to us? Well, what use is a Jesus who lived in a culture where women were viewed as property? What use is a Jesus who spoke Arabic instead of English. We can't ignore the fact that we're separated by 2,000 years. We're separated by language. We're separated by cultural norms from Jesus. This is not, the sexuality issue is not the only way in which we are very distant from the life of Christ. And that's why I think it's important as a thoughtful believer 
to engage in some degree of historical study so you can better understand the context in which Jesus lived. Uh, And if you'd like to know what good is a Jesus to you today, I'd like to share with you the most helpful book I've ever read on the topic. It is called Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus, How the Jewishness of Jesus Changes Our Faith. And it's based on a movement called Hebrew Roots Christianity, uh, where scholars learn as much as they can about first century Judaism in order to better understand the gospel texts and the relationship of the gospels to the other books of the Bible. It's a, it's a very accessible book. Um, there are certainly critics of Hebrew roots Christianity in the church, but I have personally found it helpful and illuminating, even if I don't agree with all of the theological implications And the whole idea here is that by looking at Jesus through the lens of his culture, we learn more about his actions and his words, and it actually makes Jesus more relatable to us today because we understand the cultural context for what he did. I highly recommend the book. It's an easy read, and uh, it may start you down a journey where you can understand why there's so many differences and so many points where from a modern American perspective, it's difficult to understand or relate to the historical person of Jesus. Well, that's another week's worth of Ask Science Mike. Um, Forgive me if it's a little noisy this week. I'm recording in uh, the Gungers studio. I forgot my microphone in Tallahassee while we're in L.A. this week. And a few announcements for you. Number one, as I said at the top of the show, June 9th, I'll be in Saratoga, California for the Village Forum at Saratoga Federated Church. You can learn more about that event by going to AskScienceMike.com and clicking on the Events tab. Also, last week I mentioned we're going to do a book tour for Finding God in the Ways, which is my upcoming book this fall. And I asked if you're interested in bringing him into your town to just go to findinggodinthewaves.com slash launch. And oh, wow, a lot of you did. <laughs> so if you'd like me to come to your town, don't wait. Go to findinggodinthewaves.com slash launch before all the cities where you can get me to come at a discounted rate of, well, actually no fee at all, just travel. That's all you need to get me to come to your community. Uh, you can figure out more about that and learn all the details, findinggodinthewaves.com slash launch. Don't dilly-dally. There won't be, <laughs> you won't be able to get me. Anyway, the fall is filling up fast. Um, I also want to tell you some friends of mine. You know, I'm going to be at Wild Goose, and I'd love to see you there. You can get a discount of 25% off your ticket by using GooseCast16 when you buy your ticket. But there's a really cool pre-festival activity and that's a, done by the Racial Justice Institute. Now, this has got some of my favorite people uh, leading here. Mickey Scott B. Jones is heading the whole thing up. Uh, Kenji Kuramitsu is uh, just an amazing voice uh, on intersectional Christianity and on the role that uh, mixed-race people have in the church and in society as a whole. It's also going to have Dr. Paul Alexander, Reverend Jennifer Bailey, and others. Uh, It's going to be a personal and communal journey of a deeply intersexual quest for more understanding, self-reflection, healing, and moral imagination around issues of race 
and oppression in the American and international context. So it's 59 bucks, I think, in addition to your Wild Goose ticket. So you buy it on the same uh, Wild Goose Festival website uh, that you buy your main ticket on, and you just come a day early. And this is going to be mind-blowing. If you listen to our Racism in America, our first show uh, called Black and White, and you wanted to learn more, you're going to learn more in this day than you will if you listen to all of our podcasts. Okay, These are, these are the people doing this work and doing it well. Highly recommend that the day before Wild Goose, Thursday, July 7th. It's going to be 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Take some energy bars because your brain's going to need it. <laughs> Seriously, don't miss it. There's, there's space available, and uh, they'd love to see you. And finally, uh, you know, the Liturgist Gathering is coming up. Denver and Chicago. Uh, Chicago's over half full now. It's June, and Chicago's over half full uh, Denver is about 35% full. Um, so hurry up and get your tickets. If you wait until August, even July, you might not get in. This is a, an amazing event. It's not just you. You're not the only person who's trying to figure out what it means to be a follower of Christ today. You're not the only person who thinks these weird thoughts about science and how it informs our faith. You're not the only one hungry for deeper, more authentic, and more beautiful artistic expressions in the context of our faith. So we're going to get together in Denver and Chicago and talk about it. Tickets are $75. We worked so hard to bring the cost of the tickets down and make them accessible. It's going to be an intimate gathering you're going to hang out with me, Michael Gunger, Lisa Gunger, the Honey Badger, my wife will be there. Uh, we may have some special friends join us as well, uh, especially if we sell out. Uh, but you don't want to miss it. So to go to theliturgist.com slash gathering, you can get a ticket. We've even got a discounted rate for couples, as in lifetime committed couples, uh, without any prejudice towards uh, orientation or gender. Uh, but you do need to be a lifetime committed couple to get that discount. Litter's Gathering is going to be amazing. It came out of what we did with Belong. Belong was some of the most powerful things I've been a part of, and I know the Liturgist Gathering is going to be the same way. I'd love to see you there. I want to thank Andrew Galucky uh, for not only doing the pre-production work on the show, but also for what he's done with Together. We're trying to help people find each other and coordinate uh, meetups in cities across America. You can go to this week's episode on AskScienceMike.com and click the Together link to find if Together is in your city or request it to come to yours. So, Andrew, thanks for taking that on. That's an amazing, amazing thing. Greg Nordine, as always, makes the show possible by producing it. And Jeb Botterford wrote that theme song that you sing to me in airports and at events, and it never gets old. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll see you next week.
So I'd like to take a moment and talk to you about the show's two sponsors this week. Uh, I really love them both, and they're products I use personally. The first is Pinata Grams. I mentioned it on last week's show, and it, they've told me there was a big response from that, so thank you. It's amazing. You send people a pinata in the mail. You go to pinatagrams.com, you fill out a form, you pay $20 plus shipping, and they ship a pinata full of candy to a person of your choosing. It is adorable. It is simply adorable. Uh, I've sent one uh, to a couple of folks, and then I've received one as well. You literally not in a box or anything. This pinata just comes in the mailbox or to someone's office. Imagine that. People get flowers. They get cards, candies, letters all the time. It's whimsical and fun to send a pinata. So it'll be full of candy. It'll have a label on the outside as well as a message for the person you're sending it to. It's really going to stand out and be memorable. Uh, check it out, pinatagrams.com. The other uh, sponsor this week is SaneBox. I get so much email. It's insane. And so email becomes a point of dread for me. Am I going to open my email and get swamped and get taken off task? But not anymore. SaneBox is magic. It's like having someone go through your email and sort it for you. Only the important stuff that you need to act on from people you know makes it to the inbox. Everything else gets put in another email box. You can look through at your leisure. It works with almost every email service on every device and every email app. You don't have to change anything about your email setup. Uh, SaneBox will just come in and start working for you. It's amazing. So you can get a discount on your subscription by going to SaneBox.com slash ScienceMike. I highly recommend it. It's an amazing product. And both Pinatagrams and SaneBox help make Ask Science Mike possible. 